Greetings from the Long Island Sound podcast. Welcome to the show. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. And call our listener line and leave a message for our guests. Dial 631-800-3579. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Long Island Sound Podcast, where we explore the muse and music from the North Shore to the South Shore, from New York City to the Hamptons, on the island of Long here in New York. I'm Steve Yusko from GigDestiny.com. Stay tuned as we explore the Long Island Sound. Welcome to the Long Island Sound Podcast. I'm Steve Yusko, your host. Just a regular guy who explores musicians and live music venues that help create the Long Island Sound. In this episode, we meet Robert Miller, host of the Follow Your Dream podcast. We'll explore Robert's musical career and his successful podcast. We'll discuss Project Grand Slam, Robert's band, as well as one of his original songs. If you like inspirational stories about musical journeys... This is the episode for you. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Steve Yusko from Gig Destiny, and welcome to the Long Island Sound podcast. You know, as I was doing my um, uh, looking up things on podcasts and and Long Island, I stumbled upon Robert Miller and his podcast uh, on the Internet. And Robert is a musician who has a, a youthful dream to become a rock star, similar dream that I had. He came from a musical family and came of age during the British invasion era of the 1960s. He played in rock bands through high school, studied bass with John Coltrane's bassist, and became a mainstay of the Boston music scene in the 1970s. He was sure that he was on track to stardom in music. And let's fast forward. In just over the past six years, Robert and the Project Grand Slam have released 10 albums, including a Billboard number 1 have had over 5 million video views, over a million streams, over 50,000 Facebook fans playing festivals and concerts around the world, and opened for the likes of Edgar Winter, Blues Traveler, and Bonnie James. Robert also infuses his music into his band, Project Grand Slam, into a podcast. Each episode features a different one of Robert's 100 songs, which fits with the guest or the theme of that episode. And from time to time, he also does bonus music episodes and also special episodes and solo episodes. There, I get tongue-tied. Anyway, Robert Miller, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate your time. Pleased to be here, Steve. Thank you so much. Yeah, I I listened to a few of your podcasts and uh, I picked up a few pointers, so I want to thank you uh, right from the get-go. And uh, we'll do uh, some uh, ways for you to connect with Robert. He has a really interesting background. But I'd, I'd like to kind of start uh, with your early years in music and, and where it uh, stopped, I guess, or paused and, and then how you regrouped. So tell us a little bit sure. about it. Well, I, my, I, come, I came from a musical family in that my father was a musician. He played the trumpet, um, mm-hmm. all self-taught. And, you know, he played uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs and private parties and the like on the weekends. Okay. But he loved it. 
And it, he made it very clear from the beginning of my life that I was going to be a musician as well, <laughs> whether I liked it or not. Right. And my parents, when I was about five or six years old, started me out on piano because my father thought that was kind of the mothership. If sure. you learn piano, you can go anywhere. Um, and I started taking lessons when at that age, and I did it for about a year or so. But, you know, you're five or six years old. Who wants to practice, right? Exactly. I didn't really see the benefit of this whole thing. I wanted to be out playing with my friends. So I went to my parents finally, and I said, um, yeah, I just don't want to continue doing this anymore. And they were very nice about it. They said, okay, you don't have to play piano, but you have to pick another instrument. Wow. And so I decided I'll play the trumpet because that's what my father did. And so I, I picked up the trumpet and I took lessons on the trumpet. I didn't like those any more than I liked the piano <laughs> lessons, but I didn't have much of a choice at that point. And I played uh, trumpet for the next, I don't know, dozen years or so, you know, through oh, junior wow. high and high school. I was in the orchestra, I was in the band, and everything was going swimmingly until this little band from Liverpool came around, and that changed everything. I tell you, it's so funny. As I talk to musicians, you know, the Beatles keep coming back, you know, as, as an influence. And uh, I was talking to a gentleman last night, and he was uh, a little bit uh, younger than you and I, and it came after the Beatles era, and he was introduced to the Beatles later in life, had a total misconception about the Beatles, and then really got engrossed in, in, in their influence. It's really kind of amazing. Well, they changed the world for sure. And so many of us date um, history from when they first appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show sure. in 1964. And of course, I watched it and so many others did. I remember Billy Joel talking about how, you know, for him, it changed the world as well. And at that point, it, it was no longer very cool to be playing the trumpet. Um, and I decided that I needed to take up the guitar. So I went out and bought a very cheap acoustic guitar, and so did a few of my friends. We decided we we're going to form the next band, okay? We had a drummer that had drum pads only, okay? Couldn't afford real drums. <laughs> wow. And uh, then to our chagrin, we found out that the Beatles and all the other bands were playing electric instruments. We didn't have electric instruments, but we all had these little Norelco reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders, and they came with this little um, microphone as part of the tape recorder. So literally, we would tape the microphone to the body of the guitars. Wow. And that gave us an electric guitar. Wow. So that's how we started. Neat. Now, what, what town did you grow up in? Well, I grew up in Queens, New York. Okay. We, we consider that part of Long Island geographically. <laughs> so, uh... Well, we were very close to the city line. And I did go over the city line a lot. So you can count me as one of the people that grew up on the island oh that's great so so did you do the typical high school thing where you're playing the dances and the american legion and and uh parties and stuff like that how did 100 percent. we played oh, yeah. all the church dances we played the vfw halls we played anywhere and and any place that would have us wow now i got to confess something when i was reading about your um your podcast and, and, you know, follow your dream. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit envious. I'm a, I'm a guitar, a closeted guitar player, uh, self-taught and, and I love musicians and, and all that. So you went through that period of your life, uh, you know, the teen years and how far did you take, you took it into college, I, I assume, because you talk about the, the Boston music scene. So uh, where did it progress from there for you? Well, I, first of all, I, I learned 
to play the bass. And the reason I played the bass is because in this little band that I had, which by the way was called the Buccaneers. Okay. Okay. That was my high school band. Um, at that time, my, my bandmates were all struggling to learn the treble clef or any clef. And I already knew the treble clef from the trumpet. And so I volunteered to learn the bass. That's how I became a bass player. And interestingly enough, I learned on my podcast from some other very famous bass players that a number of them started out playing the trumpet too. I, I don't oh, know why wow. that is, but we, we've got this connection between the trumpet and the bass. So I played um, rock and roll throughout my teenage years. And um, then, as you mentioned in the introduction, I got very lucky. One summer, I took a course over the summer at Brooklyn College. It was a music course. And they set everybody up with a private instructor. And who did they set me up with? It was just dumb luck. It was a guy named Jimmy Garrison, who was John Coltrane's bass player. An amazing musician. And he introduced me to a world that I did not know before that, which is jazz. Yeah, he taught sure. me how to walk on the bass and do things like that. And then I decided that I was going to go back to school. I was I had taken a break from uh, college in Boston, and he set me up with some people up there. And for the next, I don't know, five, six years, I was back in Boston. It was the jazz rock fusion era. Okay. Okay. Uh, bands like Weather Report and Chick Corea's uh, Return to Forever and the Maha Vishnu Orchestra. I loved that era. Sure. I mean, you had these bands that, that had the power of, of rock, and yet they had the improvisation and the creativity of the jazz bands. And so that's what I was doing up there for the, you know, for that period of time. Wow. You know, you talk about bass players. What's interesting is what I always hear is, yeah, every every band needs a bass player. You know, they're always looking for them. And uh, I picked up the bass for a while just because I was in a little church band and they said, uh, we need some bottom to the music. So uh, and you're not that good of a guitar player. Why don't you try the <laughs> bass? <laughs> uh, which I enjoyed because it, it's, you know, it's just a different it's it's similar, but it's a different instrument. But well, uh, I, th- I think there were a lot of bands where the, the worst guitar player became the bass player. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. You know, so so you're up in college and uh, when I don't know how to put this in a nice way is like, when did, when did it switch for you? When did it come to a screeching halt where, uh, you know, you put things down for a while? Well, I had this plan in mind. I was a broadcasting and film major in college um, in Boston. And when I graduated college, I was able to find an entry level job in the public television station in Boston. I was in the mailroom. Okay. And I was supposed to last in the mailroom for about a month. And then I was supposed to be going up into the station and get into, you know, production and direction and all of that stuff. But it was a bad time in the economy. There weren't any jobs that opened up and I got stuck in the mailroom. So here I was in the mailroom during the day. I was playing music at night at all the clubs in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. But it, it was a terrible time, you know, mentally for me because it wasn't going the way that I wanted. Sure. And um, I was not earning a living. That was the other problem. Okay. Yeah, right. Between the two jobs, if I made a hundred bucks a week, it was a lot. Wow. And I could I could only mooch so more so much off my girlfriend. At the time, <laughs> so I had to do something. And um, a friend of mine, in a moment of severe weakness for me, suggested, "Well, why don't you go to law school?" Oh, and I, I said, why would I ever do that? <laughs> it never entered my mind. 
He said, well, you're playing with a guy, and this was true, who was a doctor, a medical doctor. Sure. And he did his medicine during the day, and he played jazz at night. And he was a great musician. Wow. And he said, you could do just like him, except you could do law during the day, and you could play your music at night. Right. And he said, you could make a living. And I like the make a living part of this. <laughs> right. Okay? That always hooks you. <laughs> that hooked me. So I went off on this odyssey where I applied to law school. And unfortunately, I did well enough that I got in. And then when I was in law school, I did well enough that I got a job when I graduated. Nice. And again, my, my whole focus was I was going to do law during the day, play my music at night and make a living doing it that way. But it didn't work out that way at all. Okay. You know, right. there's that phrase that says the, the law is a jealous mistress. Yeah, sure. I was working, you know, 23 hours a day as a lawyer. I had no time for music at all. Wow. And I literally stopped playing music for 15 years. Wow. Okay. 15 years. I mean, I picked up, you know, the, the bass or the guitar every once in a while, but it was, it was nothing. I, I mean, I just stopped. Yeah. To dust and it was, off, right? I was miserable about it. I, this was not what I planned at all. Mm -hmm. But remember, at this point, I was married. I had a kid. I had a job. I had a mortgage. Life got in the way. Sure, sure. As it does for so many of us. You know, we everybody starts off life with dreams. And very few people actually follow through with those dreams. Because why? Life gets in the way. And that's what happened to me as well. And um, finally, when I was around 40-ish, Okay. I started down the path of getting out of this deep hole that I had dug for myself. I was living in New York City, and I found this place. I, I like to refer to it as a musician's dating service. Okay. <laughs> okay. Where they had this, you know, this location where you went down there, and if you said to them, I want to play uh, Led Zeppelin's second album, The First Side, uh, they would find three other idiots that wanted to play the same music <laughs> as you. And so that's what I started doing. Uh, I was going down to this place and we were playing music and I started to get my chops back together again. And then I found out that a, an old friend of mine that I had grown up with had a recording studio. So it was in the mid 1990s. I recorded my first album. Wow. And um, I brought in, you know, several people that I had known, including a, a fellow named Anton Fig who was a drummer for the Letterman show for a hundred years. And wow. um, he and I played together in Boston, some other people that played as well. Randy Brecker was on the record, etc. cetera. Um, and then I started, I put a band together. I started to play some gigs in New York, but it was still more like a, a weekend kind of deal. It was more like an avocation, more like a hobby. Sure. Because, I, you know, I was still working. I still had my family. I still had all the other issues. It was not where I wanted to go. You know, I had this thing burning inside of me for decades that I wanted to do what I thought I was intending to do all my life when I was a kid. And it just wasn't there. It took me until I passed my 60th birthday. Right. Till I finally said enough is enough. And I gave everything else up and I jumped into the deep end of the pool. Wow, that uh, good for you. I mean, it's it's like a Cinderella story. It's just really, yeah. I'm 60 now, so uh, I'm kind of living that in. Uh, in I think I have a voice for podcasting. My wife says I have a face for radio, so uh, <laughs> that's that's why I'm doing that. Hey, listen, we're going to just take a short break, and then when we get back, I'd like to talk about some of your influences. I'd like to talk about um, that album and and songwriting and and uh, how you pull that together. So let's just take uh, a quick 
a break, and we'll be right back. This is Steve Yusko from GigDestiny.com. We're the bridge between musicians and live venues. Come check us out. We're here to help you. Be well. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Steve Yusko from GigDestiny.com. You're listening to the Long Island Sound Podcast, and I'm here with Robert Miller. And Robert, I wanted to explore your influences, what influenced your music, and then I also want to, uh, I'm really excited about your project Grand Slam, so I'd like like you to tell us a little bit about that as well. Sure. Uh, well, I grew up, I came of age musically during the British Invasion era. You know, to me, that was just a marvelous era. You know, growing up in the New York City area, we had three AM radio stations. Right, um, right. You know, that, that were functioning at the same time. So you could always turn on the radio and hear one great song or another. And, you know, great DJs, etc. So I love that. In fact, my first guest on my podcast was Cousin Brucey. Who, oh, sure. Who was yeah. you know, the leading disc jockey. I call him, you know, America's number one disc jockey. He was on WABC for years. I mean, this is the guy that introduced the Beatles at Shea Stadium. That's how far back he was. Wow. And he was a marvelous wow. guest. And he's a, a guy that I that I knew for, for years before this. So wow. Great. Uh, I grew up during that British invasion era. My band would play all the songs that were on the radio. You know, we did covers of everybody because that's how you always start out doing these things. Probably my sure. first band crush was a uh, a band that, that made a name for itself on Long Island, and that's the Vanilla Fudge. And I was fortunate right, enough right. to have two of the guys from the, the Fudge on my podcast. Originally, I had uh, Mark Stein, the keyboard player, and then I, I've had Carmine Apice, who's the drummer on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I had um, another band that I loved was the Rascals. And um, oh, I had sure. Felix Cavalieri on the, on the podcast as well. So, you know, one of the nice things about this podcast is that I get to meet my heroes, okay? Guys that I, that I worshipped growing up as I was coming <laughs> through the ranks. So um, probably my, my biggest influence during this whole period was Cream, uh, the band Cream, mm -hmm. because Jack Bruce was a bassist's bassist. And right, um, right. that's hard to say, by the way, a bassist, bassist. <laughs> you pulled it off. <laughs> um, he was a marvelous musician and a guy that I ripped off as much as I possibly could because he was so good at what he did. And um, even to this day, I still have influences from him and my music. So that's how that's it all began. And when I decided to form Project Grand Slam, here I was, I had just passed my 60th birthday. And I said, if I don't do this now, when in the world am I ever going to do it? I do sure, not want to yeah. go to my grave saying, I wish I had tried. Okay. Yeah, what it could have, should have. That's right? exactly yeah. right. And, you know, from all of this, by the way, I've developed a mantra, which is you're never too old and it's never too late to follow your dream. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I agree. so I went ahead, I, I formed Project Grand Slam. The first thing I did, which was kind of funny, I put an ad in Craigslist. And I had this big uh, open audition for musicians. And I had a whole bunch of great musicians that came down. And from there, I was actually able to form the beginnings of the band. Through the years, I've substituted and changed and added and all of that. But the, the, the thing that has continued throughout is that I was trying to surround myself with young, incredibly good musicians. I wanted to borrow mm -hmm. their youth, their vitality, their energy. Sure, and, sure. Um, 
So I was able to attract, and I've still been able to attract great musicians really from all around the world. I mean, right now, if we just freeze it, I've got uh, musicians from Mexico, from Venezuela, from Canada, and from Puerto Rico, in addition to nice. me being from Queens, New York. Um, and it's a great thing because it gives me a chance to uh, also borrow their, not only their talent, but their background, their culture, their influence. And so when I create a song, I never come in with a finished song. I come in with what I call a sketch, an outline. I have in my right. mind what I think it's going to sound like. I bring a chord sheet in, I bring in lyrics, and I give them an idea to begin with as to what I have in mind. But I never say to any of the guys in the band, you play this or you play that. We try to develop sure. everything organically. And what I'm amazed at is that sometimes these songs go in a completely different direction than I ever expected. And you know what? Right, I love right. that the most because that's <laughs> a true band. Okay. That's where we're functioning as a, you know, a, a group. And um, that has happened more than just a couple of times. So it's been a great experience to do it that way. You know what I find very interesting? We touched on this before where our British cousins reintroduced the blues to us and now with um, the ability to go around the world, and, and that's, this is what I really love about your project, is you now take all these other influences in that you, know, you might not have gotten and, and, uh, and, and do exactly like you said. You, you're creating, you, you give them a foundation and you're creating something and turning down a road you may not have uh, turned down because of their influences of their culture and their musical culture. And I think that's something special. I mean, you see that I saw that in, uh, you know, with Paul Simon, what he did, you know, in South Africa and Graceland, which is an unbelievable album uh, and brought those influences. And you go, and David Byrne does that too. You know, uh, these other influences that uh, it just attracts a larger audience and, and it's a testament to you. Uh, when I was growing up, um, one of the things that my father used to do was to listen to all the Spanish radio stations that were in New York. And if I was in the car with them, of course, I was listening to the same radio station. So that whole Spanish music thing got into me. And then when I started to have musicians that came from Latin countries, I knew that I needed to write some songs that were Latin-oriented songs. So what started out as kind of a jazz rock type of uh, concept for Project Grand Slam gravitated to the point where I added in Latin as well. So now I say that it's a fusion of jazz, rock, and Latin. And the other thing that I do be, as, as a, an homage, if you will, to the era that I loved as I was growing up, every album that we've done, I take an iconic song from the 1960s and I reimagine that song in the style um, of Project Grand Slam. So we've done this with songs by uh, Hendrix, by Cream, by The Who, uh, by The Kinks. And, um, you know, that's that's just something that it's become a signature of mine. And it's something that I'll, I'll, I'll continue to do. What, what I picked up upon, and I've seen this with different musicians, is uh, there's something magical about a collaborative effort. Obviously, you need somebody in charge to kind of pull uh, creative people together and, and fin finish the hat, you know, finish the uh, the project. But by doing so, 
uh, it it just it seems like a joyful atmosphere. I mean, I wish I was a fly in the wall in, in some of these uh, songwriting development and, and, and studio stuff, because I think that's the coolest thing. And, and you know what? You don't find it everywhere. You know, I'll tell you, you what know? we did recently, which, again, took it yeah. to another step. We played a couple of concerts this past summer. And, you know, it's been very, very difficult for musicians during oh, the pandemic. Um, so many things got canceled for us and for everybody else. But we did play two uh, big concerts this past summer. One was in June in Pennsylvania, at a, a, a festival called Steel Stacks, which we've played at before in Bethlehem, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, where we play against the backdrop of these old abandoned steel mill stacks. Oh, sure. I'm familiar. I'm, I'm familiar with Bethlehem. Yeah, I know what you mean. All right. So that was great. And then in August, we played a big benefit concert for um, Shakespeare and Company, which is a Shakespearean acting troupe in Massachusetts. And the band was just as hot as a pistol that night. And I was a little ticked off that we had no recording equipment in the oh. facility to record what we had done. So I decided I was going to do something a little bit out of the ordinary. And two months later, in October of 2021, I took the band into the recording studio that we use. And we, I decided that we're going to record the concert. We're going to replicate the concert as if we were playing live, you know, in front of an audience. So we played the same 15 song set, one after another concert style, no overdubs, no fixes, no nothing. What you hear Just is raw. what you get. Nice. And the resulting album I call the Shakespeare concert. And I'm <laughs> going to release that as a quote live album. Um, probably at the end of March 2022. And it's already gotten some wonderful reviews. I was able to go back to some of my musician friends like Mark Farner from Grand Funk Railroad and Jim Peterick from uh, the bands Ides of March and Survivor, um, a New York boy that you might know, Elliot Randall, who played that marvelous solo for Steely, ben- Steely Dan on Reeling in the Years, people oh, like sure. that. Yeah, yeah have come out with wonderful quotes in in support of the album. And then the preliminary reviews have been just marvelous. So I'm very enthusiastic about putting this album out. And it could be very timely with, you know, now the numbers coming down. I I think there is a, uh, a backlog of, of people who want to go out and hear live music and, and, you know, that's my hope, I guess. Um, so let me ask you a question. When, when you, when you say you put the album out, do you, uh, do you go through a service like CD baby or something like that? Or how, how do you approach yeah, it? The world is different um, than it used to be. You know, at right. one time uh, musicians recorded albums in order to sell, uh, LPs. Now I right. think basically what musicians do is they put out albums in order to tour because I mean, let's face it. When you say putting out an album, um, I put out, I, I, I manufacture CDs, but nobody I know has a CD player anymore. Okay. <laughs> right, exactly. They're not in the cars anymore. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, wh- what is it that we do? Well, everything goes to streaming and uh, you know, Neil Young started the revolution there, although for different reasons, but I'm, I'm not a fan of streaming, you know, uh, an outfit like Spotify is worth $50 billion and they pay right. artists point zero zero four cents per stream okay so we're making peanuts and they're making a lot of money off of our music and um, it's just a racket that i don't like in fact one of the reasons that i started my podcast is because i'm not a big fan of social media i think that the 
level of engagement and commitment that you have with people on social media is so limited. It takes no effort at all for somebody to hit a like button, for example. doesn't mean anything to hit a like button. And somebody had said to me, well, why don't you think of starting a podcast? And I said, well, I didn't know very much about podcasts at that time. This is only just over a year ago. And the more I looked into it, the more I said, gee, if I have an ability to create a 30-minute or 40-minute program and I can get it, I can develop a deeper relationship with people that are listening, I said, that might be very interesting. And I've got two messages here. One was my story, uh, which I think was pretty inspirational for people and hopefully would inspire others to follow their dream. And secondly, it would be a new way to get my music out there. So as you mentioned before, in every episode of my podcast, I feature one of my songs. And I try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest or to the subject matter. And I put those songs in the beginning, underneath the introduction. And then at the end, I'll play the entire song so people can, can hear it. And along the way, I'll also do special music episodes. So I've done bonus music episodes where I recorded two albums remotely during the pandemic, which was a whole new experience for me. And um, both of them, I kind of introduced via the podcast. I would do a song each episode, a special episode. And I'm going to do the same thing for this new album, the the Shakespeare concert that I mentioned to you. I'm also going to do a, a show in the next couple of weeks where I focused only on my instrumental songs. And I picked out 10 of the instrumental songs that I've done over the years, and I've done a separate episode for that. So this gives me the ability to, again, put my music out there in a way that I like. And I'm very fortunate because the the podcast at this point, it's ranked somewhere, they tell me, around the top 3%. And I've got listeners in 184 countries. Can you imagine that, Steve? (laughs) It's it's amazing. It's I, I tell you, that's... When when I stumbled upon you, I was like, "Wow, th- you know, this this is the guy I want to be." <laughs> you know, really. I mean, I, and we have similar paths in that. Uh, you know, I worked with a good friend of mine, Mike Nugent, who's who's uh, he's sixty eight. He produces other people's albums, and 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 I, I took a similar approach. We, you know, feature two of his songs, and I do want to get that engagement. You know, to um, uh, build an audience or or a community, uh, and if nothing else, if nothing else through the Long Island Sound is just meeting people like you and other musicians, uh, and I've had the interest already in just the few interviews that I've done to say, hey, I'd really want to meet that guy. I would love to collaborate with that guy. Hey, well, you're in North Carolina. Yeah, I don't care because I'm sure we can put something together, you know, where I can do a piece on his album or what have you. So making that community. Building that community is fun. Well, you know, I think it's really I, fun. I have, that's another benefit that I did not anticipate when I first started the podcast. And I'm talking about collaboration. So, for example, one of the guys that I had on the show I mentioned before, his name is Jim Peterick. Jim Peterick wrote two massive hits. Okay. The first okay. one was called Vehicle by the Ides of March in 1970. And then he co wrote a song called Eye of the Tiger for Survivor. Um, oh, sure. Which was the yeah. theme song for Rocky Three. It's only got 700 yep. million views on YouTube. <laughs> um, right. But I interviewed um, Jim, and uh, Jim's got purple hair. He's he's the quintessential <laughs> rock star, okay? And he's still out there. He's doing his thing. He's terrific. And he and I are collaborating on a song together. 
Okay. Nice. Uh, I wrote a, a song. I sent it to him. He liked it. He said, let me work on this with you. And that's the kind of thing that has come out of, you know, doing the podcast. So I'm meeting guys that I always wanted to meet. And in some special cases like this, I'm collaborating with them. Yeah. And, and you're, you're on a, uh, you're on a platform where you're, you know, people have interest and you're meeting people. I think that's, that's great. Hey, you know, that's a, a good point for just a quick segue. We'll take a break here and uh, we'll be right back. And we're going to talk about the songwriting process and then some of the future events and how you, you can uh, reach out to uh, Robert. So we'll be right back. Hi, Steve Yusko from Gig Destiny here. Well, as you're probably listening to this podcast, you're probably thinking about that musician who would make a fantastic guest here on the Long Island Sound. Well, we'd like to hear their story. We'd like to hear their music. So have them reach out to us at gigdestiny.com and we'll explore their craft. Now, back to our podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is Steve Yusko with Gig Destiny and you're listening to the Long Island Sound podcast and we're here with Robert Miller. And Robert, I'd like to explore, I find it very interesting, uh, the songwriting process. You know, uh, we spoke a little bit about your collaboration with uh, Project Grand Slam, but um, tell me a little bit about your process. Uh, you know, how, how do you write songs? I wish I, I, wish I knew. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a mystical, magical process for me. Um, I, first of all, I, I write on one of three instruments. I do a lot of writing on the bass, which is wow. okay. maybe unusual because it's not a melodic instrument. Um, I will write on the guitar. I'll write on the piano as well. And basically, I, I just, I fiddle. I, I fiddle around I, and I'm, and something will come to me. It could be a lick. It could be a phrase. And mm -hmm. if I like it enough, I take out my trusty iPhone and I make a little recording of it. You know, it could be a 10 second, 20 second type of recording. Number one, so I can remember it. And number two, exactly. Yep. It, it lets me put it down and come back a few days or a week later and test whether or not what I thought was good really stands any kind of a chance. And if it sure. does, then I start to work with it. I, I've always written songs with the music first. I can't think of a single okay. time where I have written the lyrics first and then put the lyrics to music. It's, that's why I was always amazed that Elton John could take Bernie Taupin's lyrics oh, yeah. and just create you know, that, his wonderful music around it. It's just the opposite of me. Um, mm. And I, I read McCartney's book, The Lyrics, and I think for the most part, he also writes the music first and then puts the lyrics to things. I think that's just the more natural way for musicians to do it. Um, in terms of how things develop and where they go, I never know in advance. I, I almost never set out to write a certain type of song or to have a certain right. type of message. And I do like to write message songs, um, which is something that has gone out of music for the most part. You know, back in sure. the 1960s, there were all these anti-war songs and various other message yep. songs. Dylan wrote them. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young wrote Ohio after the Kent State shooting. There were all kinds of uh, evidence of doing songs like that. But nowadays, you almost never hear artists going out on a limb and taking a position. And a couple of guys have said to me, well, why would I want to do that? Because if I alienate somebody, then I'm, I'm alienating half my audience that way. And, but I take the position that I think artists have an obligation 
to speak out on social issues. Oh, oh, I agree. So I wrote I a song, for example, um, called um, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's escaping me for the moment. <laughs> Tree of Life. Sorry. Uh, Tree of Life is a song that I wrote back in 2018 after another one of the mass shootings that has taken place and yeah. plagued this country. This one just happened to take place at a synagogue in Pittsburgh named the Tree of Life Synagogue. And five people got murdered senselessly. A guy walks in, you know, shoots them all, etc. And I got fed up and I wrote a song. It's a very spare, mournful, somber song. Um, and it's basically my anti-gun song. And it was recorded just with piano and voice. And I put it out as um, a single, and then I put it out as one on the one of the albums that we put out, PGS Seven. And what I was hoping for was that a message would be sent via my song, and we'd finally get some action by Congress to do something about these mass shootings. And of course, nothing has been done. Right. And I agree with you. Here it is, you know, three four years later, and I I, I took a look at the statistics, and it was just stark and galling to me. We've had something like 600 mass shootings in the last several years. I mean, it's just astounding. The number of children, the number of adults, just the number of people that have suffered needlessly from this. And so I felt it was important to put that song out. Okay. And I've done other songs like that. These, what I call the message songs, but for the most part, I'll start writing a song and I won't have a, a theme. I won't have a, um, a, a, a title. I won't have a direction for the song. Something will just pop into my head. And I go with it. And if, if I think it works, I'll continue during that, you know, during, down that path. I'll create rhymes, etc. And I've, I've written so many of my songs in just that fashion. It's just like I'm the, I'm the vehicle and they just come out of me. Right. Okay. Yeah, I hear you. And I've yeah. got a catalog now of about a hundred songs. So um, wow. we're talking about songs that are uh, vocals. I, I switched over a few years ago. My wife said to me, "You know, most people really like vocal songs. They just relate more to vocals than they do to instrumentals." And I right. thought about it. And I said, "You know, you're right." So I switched over from doing almost all instrumentals when I began. Now I do almost all vocal songs. And vocal songs are completely different, of course, from instrumentals. With an instrumental, sure. you're trying to create a feel. You're trying to create an image just with the, the music. But with a vocal song, you have that, but you have a lyric. And the lyric has to create you know, a story. It has to create an image that people can relate to. So it took me a little while before I could find my groove as somebody that was writing both you know, music and lyrics. But now I feel very comfortable with that. That's great. You know, what's interesting is someone told me uh, I'm married and, uh, you know, a spouse sometimes tell you, tells you the things you need to hear, not always what you want to hear and, and is an influence in, into a direction for you. Uh, and I, one of the other things that, that you had mentioned, which I think is great. I think there are artists out there who, you know, well, hey, you're not going to get subscribers and you're going to blow off some of your audience. Well, you know what, if you're listening to your heart and there's a social justice issue that uh, is driving you, then, hey, you know, you're, in my opinion, you're obligated to speak that if you're going to be true to yourself. And, uh, you know, I, man, we need, we really need more of that. And just, I'll give you an aside. So I'm on the other side of it. I'm in the security business. 
and I work with schools and, and uh, active shooter drills and, mm. and, and the other side of it, the fear side of it. And uh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, the tragedy is heartbreaking. And then where we are today is heartbreaking. So, yeah, keep, keep speaking out and, and, and put that voice. Well, I, it's, that, it's, that's it's, what it's I'm going to really do because that's just the way that I feel about things. And also, you know, the other thing that's happening in music, uh, it, music used to be much more free form back in the 60s and the 70s. People could mm -hmm. kind of, you know, bands and artists could do almost whatever they wanted and people would accept it. Over time, people have been pushed into slots, okay? And people have said to me all the time, well, you do jazz, rock, and, and Latin. That, that's too many genres. I mean, people can't understand that. And I said, well, that's just the way it is. And I, that's, you know, if they like me and they like my music, they're going to follow me throughout these different genres. But people have tried over a, a, a number of years to push me into a single genre. You know, if you want to make sure. it, you got to be just this so that people can get you in three words. You know, they know exactly what you are. So, well. I got three words. I got jazz, rock, and Latin. Those are three words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 what I look at as you know the formula to be successful that they'll push out. You know, boy bands and all these different things that uh, you know. It, this may go against people's grain, but I hate shows like The Voice and these other places yeah. where you know they're being judged and and you know they got to fit into that mold and and it's just like. I'm horrified. <laughs> Very few people you know. take chances anymore. You know, the promoters back in the day used to put together bills that, that would have different types of acts on them. I've spoken a few times about how I remember going to the Fillmore East and seeing Miles Davis open for the Who, okay? which And, you know, you think about that now, you say that could never happen today. But if you really think about it, you say to yourself, wait a minute, that was fantastic because each one brought an audience to the live performance that the other one didn't have so everybody got introduced to the top level performance that you know each of the other artists was doing it was a marvelous way to expand your audience okay and to and to have people hear things that they might not otherwise have heard but nowadays promoters you know they they only do single thing but promoters only care about one thing how many tickets can you sell period exactly. okay if yep. those four guys from liverpool came out today the only thing that anybody would ask them is, well, how many tickets can you sell? All right. Not, <laughs> right. How many subscribers do you have? Well, it's true. You know, that it's sort of it's yeah. true. That's, yeah. that's the way the world is. So, you know, look, part of my thing is that when I say to people, you know, you're never too old and it's never too late to follow your dream, it doesn't mean that your dream has to be a raging success. My view is that what you don't want to do is go through life and regret that you never gave whatever is your passion a shot. Sure. Okay. Yep. If you happen to succeed or at, at some high level, you know, it's like icing on the cake, but there's all different types of success. I mean, let's face it. I'm not selling out um, stadiums like the Rolling Stones. Okay. I'm not at that level of success, but I never thought I'd be at the level of success that I'm at where I am at the moment. And it, it's okay for me. I'm doing what I wanted to do. I'm doing exactly what I always wanted to do. Finally got there. And on top of that, I got the podcast and uh, I wrote a book on top of it all. So, yep, you know, yep. I can't I complain. As well. You know, this, I, 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 my mom used to say, don't look at anybody else's ruler. You know, you're not, you're not measured by their ruler, you know? So uh, I tell you it's uh and I think one other thing, you know, doing festivals, you know, where you have multiple 
uh, acts and bands where they're sharing audiences. I think that's that's really a great great place for artists to get exposed to uh, other artists and other uh, other fans and audiences. I think that's you know that's a great thing. So uh, hey, listen, I, I you know I, I'm going to end the podcast with uh, it, if if you let me the tree of life. I think I think it's important. Uh, if nothing else. So uh, if you can send that to me, we'll we'll do a break and fit it into the podcast somehow or whatever other song you like. I'll um, send you a couple, but I'll send you Tree of Life, no question. So 
uh, so you have an album that's going to be coming out in March. Anything else? Any other events that you want to tell us about? Um, I am. Well, I, I mentioned that I'm I'm doing the collaboration with Jim Peterick. So I got one single coming out with him. I've got another single, completely different kind of song, more a love song that I have done with a, a lovely singer, terrific singer named Leslie Hunt, who was on American Idol. Okay. And so I'm going to be putting that out also sometime in the late spring. So between the podcast and the the, the uh, Shakespeare concert and the two singles, that's got me uh, the next six <laughs> months ra- uh, you know wrapped up for me. Well, I, I tell you, uh, Robert, I really have to thank you for your time. We can account for a lot of things, what's in the bank, what have you. We can't account for what time we have left. So the fact that you... Uh, you took this junior podcaster and spent some time with me. I, I feel very blessed that, that you spent the time with me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It. Everybody got to start somewhere and <laughs> I'm sure you're going to build it into a really successful podcast. Good for yeah, you. And, and when, and, and uh, when you come back to New York, please look me up. I'd like to buy you a drink. I have a cup of coffee <laughs> or whatever. I really enjoyed it. So again, thank you, Robert Miller. Uh, we'll have some information uh, for you to find Robert and, uh, you know, his group, uh, the Project Grand Slam. And once again, thank you. And we'll see everybody soon. Great. Well. My pleasure. Thanks, Robert. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com. Till next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. We really love to hear from you. And call our listener line at 631-800-3579. Again, thanks so much. Be well.